always green around the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. You're listening to hour number three. Welcome to Green and Growing. You have found us on 95.5 WSB. Really glad you're here. We're having a fun show today. Georgia Arbor Day was yesterday, but there are, I want to say celebrations, but people aren't really out doing things that they normally do. But there are things going on this weekend. So kind of take a gander at what your local community is doing and maybe even handing out free seedlings. If you're looking for a tree, that might be kind of cool. Something to do uh, with the kids this weekend for sure. And also next week, you did not have this on your calendar, I can guarantee you, but you're going to now after you listen to my guests and I talk about it. Um, next week is Invasive Species Awareness Week, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of a big deal, and it's kind of cool, and I'm certainly going to tell you why, but uh, you'll be a little more in tune with the North American Invasive Species Management Association and why they make this a thing and why it's so prevalent. So I guess without further ado, I'll bring him on, Dr. David Coyle from Clemson University. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I am glad you came back. So run down your resume for us, because you've got like all these uh, acronyms and these initials after your name that I couldn't even begin <laughs> to know <laughs> what they all mean. But you've, I mean, yeah. you, you've got a background in this stuff. I do have a background. You know, I got a, a bachelor's degree at a small college in Iowa, my master's at Iowa State, and my PhD at the University of Wisconsin. And I've worked in forest and tree health for, boy, coming up on 25 years now, maybe more. I don't know. It's tough to lose count sometimes. But, you know, what I do is help people keep trees healthy and help people keep trees alive and keep, uh, you know, everything from a natural area, the forest you drive by, to people's trees in their yard. My job is to help them keep that tree healthy and living. Now, what, what piqued your interest in this when you're in your late teens, early 20s, that you knew this is what you wanted to do? Was it a certain you know, news story you had heard or just a curiosity about entomology you had had? What was it? I wish there was some really great, uh, you know, reflective thing that happened, <laughs> but it was more of a, you know, I grew up in the country on a farm and a lot of what I did was just go play in the woods when I was a kid. And then when I went to college, you know, I, I went there mostly just to play football, to be honest with you. And it was close to home and I got this degree in biology, not really knowing what I was going to do with it. I was just kind of cool to, to do that stuff. I did take an entomology class while I was there, you know, study of insects. And when I got done with my undergrad degree, I kind of had these two choices. I could go work at a roofing company with my best friend in Iowa. And I figured we could make a few grand and then to go to Europe for a couple of years or a year or something. Mm -hmm. Or I could take the more uh, grown-up, sensible <laughs> uh, route and go to grad school. And I ended up doing that because that I figured at the time that would buy me three years to get my life in order versus maybe one year. And so I went with the safe route and I uh, went and did my master's. And then when I was there, you know, I worked on trees and insects that eat them and everything just sort of clicked at that point. So here we are. And have you been to Europe? I have. Yeah. Okay, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> you were still able to afford that and do that. I was, so. Yeah, I mean, I was older. Yeah, we still managed to get over there. But yeah, it was. Uh, I think you know. made a good career choice for sure. Yeah, right. Well, at the time, it really was just like, wow, I could do this. But then in one year, what am I going to do versus that? Uh, this will give me three years to grow up and figure it out. So. Well, and think about what a rewarding career. I mean, you're helping really, like, not just like you said, one or two homeowners at a time with their trees and their landscapes, but the work that all of you do there at Clemson is huge and it has a global impact really. But 
I've heard you speak in a lot of webinars. You know, that is the, the new way now. Folks can do that from the comforts of their own home. Listen to experts such as yourself and these programs that uh, local, you know, Master Gardener programs are putting on or the universities are putting on. And um, invasive species. I mean, that's kind of really what we're concerned with and why people care. But first of all, my question to you, what classifies a species as invasive? At what point do you all put the, you know, sound the alarm on them? Yeah, great question. You know, there's so much uh, global commerce at this point that it's inevitable that things get into this country or into this continent from other places. And, you know, when I'm talking things, I'm talking about insects and fungi. And, you know, my specialty is the stuff that hits trees. So there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, bugs flying around out here that are not native to this continent. There's a lot of things from Europe. There's a lot of things from Asia, uh, a few things from, from South America, that type of deal. So there's a lot of stuff out there already, but what makes them invasive is a couple, couple, three things. You know, first, they've obviously got to not be from here, but then there's two biological characteristics. One is they have a really, really high reproductive rate, and maybe that means they, they lay a lot of eggs or they, they, they produce a lot of, you know, spores of the fungus. It's this really high reproductive rate, and the kicker is when they get to this new country, None of the natural controls that they had in their former home, those aren't here anymore. Mm -hmm. So any predators they had in their native land, those don't exist here. So when they have this high reproductive rate and no predators, boom, their populations just skyrocket. And then mm -hmm. one of the things they do at that point is you start to see some of these species will really crowd out the native ones, you know, where you used to have a whole diverse assemblage of different, you know, bark beetles, for instance, and all of a sudden you've just got, you know, 90% of everything is this one non-native thing. And then, you know, once we start seeing that really big economic or ecological impact, then it sort of gets that term, wow, this is invasive. You know, invasives are detrimental and they cost us a lot of money to take care of. So it's got to hit those two, two main points. Well, and it's amazing. Y'all have boots on the ground for sure. But now with technology like aerial footage and things like that are flying drones over acres and acres of forests, y'all are able to identify the deaths of trees at an alarming rate from overhead and kind of hopefully pinpointing hot spots that way. That's kind of where the science is going. You know, it's, it's super labor intensive to walk 100 acre stand, you know, and try to find out, well, what's killing trees out in the middle of it when you can just plop down on the side of the road and pop the drone up there and send it out, you know, and in an hour, you just scan the entire thing. So that's definitely where the science is going and the technology, you know, it's expanding so rapidly. It's just, it's difficult to keep up with if it's not, you know, the only thing you do. I know for me, that's just kind of a part of what I do and it's hard to keep up. There's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of different digital imagery things that are coming into place, stuff from satellites, stuff from drones, and they each have their, you know, their place, their pros and cons. And you know, honestly, I just got a couple of buddies of mine that I ask if I have questions. I said, John, what's up with this new thing? And he can tell me because I just can't keep, can't keep straight. Yeah. Now, one of the big ones, though, that I've heard you mention in a few different talks, and I think we even talked about this last year, the Asian longhorned beetle. Um, that's a great concern for your industry right now and something that you've been tracking for how many years? Yeah, I mean, it, it arrived in South Carolina uh, just last May as well. I shouldn't say arrived. We found it at the end of last May, May of 2020. And we later learned that it had been there for at least seven years. Jeez. So this thing has been down there uh, just south of Charleston for at least seven years before anybody turned it in, anybody said anything about it. You know, and we can 
talk about that story, but, you know, this beetle got to North America. They found it in 1998, and there's been several spots in the, in the continent where it's popped up, Toronto, Illinois, Ohio, uh, several places in the Northeast. The good news, I always like to lead off with the good news, we can get rid of this one, right? So we know that uh, with a very aggressive tree-cutting protocol, we can get rid of this invasive species. But uh, it's going to take a lot, of, a lot of effort. And I think, you know, talking about the effort, we want to talk about the, the importance that people, homeowners, landowners can play in invasive species detection. Okay, I mean... We, and I say we, your Georgia Forestry Commission, you know, extension people, we can't be everywhere all the time. Um, And so we do rely on people calling things in and telling us, hey, I saw this thing that looks off. Uh, You know, we will respond to all of those those things. And the Asian longhorn beetle is a great example. So the story here is this this lady, this homeowner down there uh, south of Charleston saw this really big black and white beetle on her porch, uh, you know, by the light, and she took a picture of it, and she sent it to her son, which is not uncommon. You know, moms do this type of thing a lot. <laughs> but her son just happened to be an entomologist over at Texas A&M. Oh, that's convenient. And he just happened to have done either his Ph.D. or his postdoctoral work up at Cornell in New York, where they have Asian longhorn beetles. So he immediately recognized it and said, Ma, you got to call someone, stat. Uh, she did. She called Clemson's regulatory folks. And, you know, it's a very easy beetle to identify. They came out that day, got it, identified it positive, and then, boom, we're off and running, right? We've got the USDA help. We've got all this stuff happening. But, you know, this we don't even know this thing is here if this lady doesn't happen to take a picture and send it to her kid who happened to know what he was talking about. How observant. Like to, yeah, just to notice know, gardeners are outside yeah. and they see the birds and the insects and can identify different plants. But when you see something that just doesn't look like it fits, that's amazing to think, okay, well, my, my county extension agent, you know, may be able to identify that. And then it could be moved up the chain if it's something alarming. Um, I want to ask you before we take a break, though, Dr. Coyle, what is the, the damage that the Asian longhorn beetle does exactly? How is that just so detrimental to the trees and forests? Yeah, the biggest part of the the most damage comes from the larval feeding. They create a little tunnel throughout the middle of the wood. It's almost, you know, it's about the thickness of a pencil. And it basically Swiss cheeses the inside of that tree. And then that tree gets extremely weak and you've got branches and stems really prone to breaking and eventually the tree dies. So that's a big part of what it does. Uh, And it mostly hits maple trees. Uh, So, again, our big concern is those trees just kind of falling apart as they're standing there. Ooh, definitely something to look out for. And when are when are they going to become active? They're not active right now in the winter months, are they? Well, you know, that's something we don't know. We're still trying to figure out how their life cycle is down uh, in the deep south here because this is the furthest south it's ever been. Uh, mostly the adults become active, you know, spring, summer, fall. Uh, but, you know, again, we're not totally sure. There's a, certainly a possibility that they're going to be active year-round in this climate. All right. We do have a couple of questions for Dr. David Coyle of Clemson University. We're talking about um, Invasive Species Awareness Week, which I will share a link to uh, some webinars that a national organization is putting on this week. There's one every day um, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about this. I spend a lot of my time that way now. We, We were talking about everything being virtual and online 
all this stuff's free, guys. There's so many good resources from these local gardening programs and national organizations, too, that you can really start learning a lot when you're just cooped up for the wintertime anyways. I mean, what else are we doing? So, all right, Dr. David Coyle, will be back with you. We're going to take a break and get an update on traffic and weather. It's WSB. And Finley Roofing sponsors your weather update right now. 50 degrees is the high today. It's going to be a sunny day and mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. It'll be a little warmer, but a chance of rain returns on Monday. Channel 2 Action News meteorologist Brad Nitz is back with a complete forecast in about 10 minutes. I want to bring back on Dr. David Coyle of Clemson University, and we're talking about invasive species, right? And our focus uh, right now, just because of the amount of time we have, is the Asian longhorned beetle. Talk briefly, Dr. Coyle, about the campaign that you all have in South Carolina literally to make folks aware of this guy. Right. We're really concerned with Asian longhorn beetle moving because we know it can get moved in firewood. So we are doing everything we can to make people aware that this thing is there. It gets moved in firewood. We've put up billboards. We've got things on the radio down there. We've got articles in the newspaper. I've done, you know, several TV spots. We're trying to reach every possible communication avenue you can think of to just alert people that, hey, there's a big beetle down here. There are some federal quarantines at this point. You can't move certain wood products in and out of a, you know, a certain area down there. And in all likelihood, this beetle got there from firewood transport. That's, That's what's probably happening you know we can't we haven't proven that yet but all the signs point to that as the way it got there See, and I, I go camping my husband and i go camping with this other couple and we bring our own firewood whether we're going to florida or south carolina like ew, oh no i may contribute uh, to that me, don't, don't do that don't tell me don't tell me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you have to rat me out great i just admitted it on radio um well let me ask you a question i got a question from larry for you and he sent it to me on twitter saw quite a few asian joro spiders in my house and on my deck last summer or guy, if you've seen those guys, they're pretty intimidating. Uh, is that any concern? Yeah, these are huge. These look like those big banana spiders. Yeah. The bodies are, you know, an inch long with the legs. They seem to spread out two to three inches long. They're massive, big yellow things. So, you know, they're not native from here. I don't know that I would call them invasive yet. You know, okay. they haven't shown us any of those invasive tendencies. Um, they're mostly in, you know, northeast Georgia and sort of uh, western uh, North or South Carolina. Yes, they're big. Yes, they're intimidating. They're pretty docile. Uh, so at this point, they're there. You know, people at UGA are monitoring these things. We're yeah. watching them, but we have not, you know, I wouldn't call them invasive. Of course, I always qualify that saying this is subject to change. Should we learn more yeah. about it? Just right? terrifying. They're, they're hideous. Um, (laughs) so Dr. Coyle, I'm so glad you had a chance to come on today and, uh, making folks aware of invasive species awareness week. And there are things I'm going to share throughout the week on the, uh, on the Facebook page, but how can folks keep up with you? Boy, the easiest way to keep up with me is follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dave Coyle, D-R-D-A-V-E-C-O-Y-L-E. And I tend to try to put up there where I'm going to be, where I'm going to talk to, you know, I do a lot, lots of talks about, 
forest health and tree health and invasive plants, uh, just all of that stuff sort of falls in my wheelhouse. And, and I find myself doing a lot of, a lot of webinars. On yeah, those. and good webinars, I might add. I hope that some of my listeners can see you on their computer screen and be educated more by the hard work that you all do over there in Clemson. Thanks so much for being on the show. I hate to, but we got to take a break and check news, weather and traffic, stuff you need to know. And then coming up in just a few minutes, Pike Nursery. Stay tuned to Green and Growing. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. I've had so many great guests on the show today, and my thanks to Meredith Stone with Georgia Power and Seth Hawkins from the Georgia Forestry Commission. They were on in the six o'clock hour. If when you go back and listen on wsbradio.com and click on On Demand. The show is also going to be on Spotify and Google Play later. And my thanks to Dr. David Coyle. I always have such a great time having him on from Clemson University to uh, preview Invasive Species Awareness Week, which to me, that's exciting. Like, that's kind of cool. We talk about everything here, birds and bugs and plants and flowers and trees and stuff, as the promo says. Um, and now is the time to talk about lawns. That is something you're all thinking about. You don't want spring weeds. And I don't want you to wait until you have them and then call and ask me how to treat them. So with me now from Pike Nursery, it's Jackson Grimsley, the assistant manager of the Roswell location. How are you, Jackson? Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm happy to be here. So this is a good topic, pre-emergent herbicide. So what that is, it is getting to weeds before they become weeds and we're preventing them, right? Rather than spraying them with Roundup once we see them or having to manually remove them. Um, and I think it's good for folks to know right now is the time to apply a pre-emergent herbicide to combat spring weeds that haven't even grown up yet, right? Absolutely. Now is the perfect time to do that. Your your spring weeds really start to germinate once the soil temp gets above about 50 degrees or so. So right now, late February is the perfect time to start treating. And like those grassy weeds, like crabgrass and goosegrass and things like that that we're going to be seeing in the coming months they uh, they don't care what lawn you have. They're going to grow just as well in Bermuda as they are in fescue. Um, so this is kind of a broad, you know, time to really apply a pre-emergent to almost any any lawn type. But y'all have got some great products there at Pike Nursery that are going to really, you know, make this easy for folks. Absolutely. Um, if you just are looking for a straight pre-emergent, if you don't have any winter weeds right now, uh, we have one, uh, it's our private label pike crabgrass preventer, um, and that is going to take care of a, a big uh, swath of weeds, uh, 45 types of weeds, actually, and even really tough ones like chickweed, uh, crabgrass, uh, different spurges. Um, so it's a great product. One bag uh, will cover about 5,000 square feet, wow. so you know it, it goes a good ways as well. Um, big important thing to remember with pre-emergence if you're planning on seeding this spring, you're not going to be able to put one down um, or you at least need to wait about uh, 12 weeks. So you could probably seed something like Bermuda or Zoysia this summer. But if you're going to be overseeding fescue, I wouldn't recommend putting a, a pre-emergent down. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, you know, the the which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of question when you're talking about overseeding in March or April for fescue and then also wanting to, to do a pre-emergent. What what I have found, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jackson, or you have a different opinion, but if we want to kind of thicken up that fescue 
it may be a good idea to seed first and at least, well, no, not even, because I was going to say watch some of the seeds germinate, the grass start to grow, and then when you put down a pre-emergent, it's not so much going to affect it, but then that may be too late, huh? Some of those spring weeds have already started. Exactly. They've yeah. already started to come up, but in the case that you do have uh, weeds already coming up and some that still haven't germinated, we also have a combination pre- and post-emergent uh, product called uh, that Bonai produces called Weed Beater Complete. Um, and on that one, again, it's a pre and post. So it's going to take care of weeds that have already germinated and also stop weeds from germinating. Um, and again, and it's very effective, again, on some pretty tough weeds that have already come up, um, nutsedge, uh, wild onions and garlic, some things that can be kind of tough to get rid of. Um, this one is very effective on. And how do we apply these these herbicides? So these are, these are granular products. You're going to apply them with a spreader. Um, and that's the good thing with these products is they do have spreader settings on the back. Um, so depending on what uh, brand and type of spreader you have, it'll have your, your settings that you're going to want to use uh, to make sure that you're getting uh, the correct uh, spread on there. And for folks who really just want to stay on top of weed prevention and for whatever reason you're just not comfortable doing this, you don't want to use a pre-emergence herbicide, that's fine. Um, mulch is a great way, Jackson, to keep weeds at bay. It's not 100%, but it's going to give a good look to your landscape. It it's, keeps the soil moist. It, it prevents weeds. But y'all have got a great deal on mulch this weekend. Absolutely. Mulching is, is an extremely important part of, of weed prevention because it does, uh, you know, d it denies the weeds the sunlight that they need to really get going um, and, it, and can smother them as well. So it's very important. We do have a big sale uh, this weekend for Saturday and Sunday only. Our pine bark nuggets and mini nuggets are on sale uh, for four bags for $10. They're normally three eighty nine each, so it's a really good deal. Uh, right now. Also, uh, mulching is also very important this time of year in case you do have some tender items that can help insulate uh, those things in the soil as well. Oh, yeah. Four bags for 10 bucks. Like, I mean, you, you need to get a minimum of four bags because <laughs> you need a lot of mulch. It's it's a lot and it's uh, really useful to have. Well, Jackson, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. And where can folks find out more? Absolutely. Just go to our website, pikenursery.com. We have tons of great information on there. And also you can find out uh, which of our stores is nearest to you, please stop on by the store and our associates will be happy to help you. Awesome. Jackson, always a pleasure. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks. And as he mentioned, the uh, the Pine Bark Nuggets and the Mini Nuggets on sale only today and tomorrow at all Pike locations, four for $10. And the pre-emergent that he mentioned was the Pike Private Label, the Crabgrass Preventer, because that's that grassy weed that's going to appear in the spring. And then the one that has pre and post, kind of read the bag and see if that's you know, the direction you want to go, but that's Bonide Eyed Weed Beater Complete. That's also a very good product, and you've probably heard Walter Reeves mention it on this very program for years and years. 404-872-0750 is the number. A lot of good calls. Try to get to all of them. Claire Lawrenceville, you're back. Hey, welcome to the show. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Claire. Hi. How, how can I help you? Well, Ashley, I'm thinking about... um. Asking you a question about growing garlic. Mm -hmm. I planted a few garlic cloves in October. Good. And um, they seem to shoot up quite a few green stalks. The stalks are about like 12 inches. Wow. That's and I was, 
Yeah, I was wondering if the those stocks that look like scallion are they edible? Do you know? I think they are. Yeah, absolutely. But they the the bulb underneath needs that foliage to you know keep doing its thing. So don't cut it off. Yeah. Okay, so I shouldn't cut it off. Then um, I would like to know also when is a good time to harvest. You know, it's going to take a while. That's why we do this back in the fall. October, November is ideal. It may be as late as May um, before we can harvest this, even like late May, early June. So it's going to be a long time. It requires a lot of patience, Claire. And of course, you know, anybody out there wondering, it's nothing you're doing wrong. It just really takes a long time. And once we get into April and May, that's kind of a critical period for looking out for diseases as well. As with any vegetable or edible in the landscape, you don't really want to water at night because things don't have time to dry out. So getting out there in the early morning and doing your irrigation then is going to at least reduce the uh, the chance of disease and all of that. So as long as they're getting good drainage, everything under the soil should be doing just fine. I'm really glad you did it, Claire. I did too. I did I did just one uh, clove, and, and mine's the same as yours. So report back and let me know when you're ready in May or June to harvest that. 404 8720750 up next is Evelyn in Noonan. Hey Evelyn, good morning. Good morning to you. So what's going on? I have a Christmas cactus that did not bloom either in November or December and I've just noticed it's got a funny little blossom on it now. What did I do wrong to prompt no blossom. My first thought, and my mom had the same issue with hers, um, I I wonder if it just didn't get enough sunlight and everything that it needed in the summertime. Did you move it outside in the summer? No, but it sits in a window. I mean, not in the window, but it sits on a piece of furniture that is next to the window with a lamp. And I would think that that was enough sun. If not, I will move it outside this year. Yeah, because, I mean, they can bloom continuously for years and years and years. So if you just have a bad year, it could just be a fluke. But that would be my guess. It needs to soak up as much as much sunshine as it can in the summer months before a lot of people, you know, then tend to bring it in, obviously, before temperatures start to dip. But try that, Evelyn, if you've got I just a nice place. Tell me when I should fertilize that plant. Um, hmm. That I'm not sure of. General rule of thumb for fertilizing is just when something's in active growth. Um, so probably once you bring it in to the house, like after the summertime, um, when you bring it in and you really start to baby it, it needs that fertilizer at that point to start putting the buds on and things like that. So I probably wouldn't think it's necessary. Maybe one application over the summer, but not even that's not even a must. All right. Thank you for your help. I I'm certainly do appreciate I'm it. I'm so glad you called, and you better call back next winter and say you had loads of blooms on that Christmas cactus. I hope that's going to be the case. All right. Up next, we go up to Brazelton, and hey, say good morning to Clark. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I have a entomology kind of question, but I wasn't too hot on asking that Clemson guy anyway, since I'm a Georgia Bulldog. <laughs> Everyone always gives uh, him gives him a hard time for that, I agree. <laughs> I think uh, that I've diagnosed our Encore Azaleas having lace bug mm, issues mm-hmm. year after year, and uh, I wondered, can that also be on Mondo grass that's right next to it? That, that they affect Mondo grass. Um, But then I've heard about 
Emmett a Cloprid. Yeah, oh, yes. Uh, First try. Good job. You are. So, well, you know, I, like I say, I went to Georgia. I took some entomology there, too. But I was a little worried about the uh, effect on honeybees and other insects if I use that. Do we have any up-to-date research? I do not, and that's really something I need to look into because we do warn folks about using herbicides, right, coming up into this part of the year as flowers on cherry trees and fruit trees and things are starting to open, that's when we need that pollination and the bees are going to be really active and crucial in producing the fruits and things that we want. So yeah, you have to kind of think on a micro level in your own landscape if you're putting that out, if there's a chance for transfer. So Clark, I promise to do some research on that. Um, But imidacloprid is the product for lace bug and that's a systemic drench, right? So that's going to come up through the root system and go all over the plant. Um, that's the best way for, for lace bug control. And I don't see why they, they couldn't affect uh, Mondo grass because really what they're after is the sap and the leaves, and that's what leaves the leaves with that speckled kind of look. Um, so the best time to do that drench, the imidacloprid, is in spring after they bloom. So in that case, this isn't going to be a risk to uh, you know our beneficial insects if we wait until the flowers are are done and expired on the azalea. We won't have the bees and things visiting the the shrub at that time. Um, but thank you for that. You probably have a little bit more knowledge in entomology than I do because uh, I did not take any of those classes at Georgia. I took a forestry class and a, and a geology class, which was pretty cool. But thank you for that, Clark. I will do a little more research because that's this is a crucial time of year we're coming up on to make folks aware of just being very, very careful with the herbicides that they use. Thanks for the call. We'll have time for just a few more. So Connie and Melvin and Rick, y'all hang on. We're going to take a break and we'll be back on Green and Growing. You're listening to WSB. We've been on since 6 a.m., so if there's any parts of the show that you missed, if you're just joining us, you can go back and listen on demand on wsbradio.com or on the app uh, Spotify or Google Play. The the full three hours of the show are there for your listening pleasure anytime. So the weather forecast today and this weekend brought to you by Finley Roofing. It's going to be sunny. It's turning out to be a nice day, but only 50 degrees. It's still going to be chilly today and mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs around the mid-50s and a chance of rain returns on Monday. Green, green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. So we're talking about putting pre-emergence herbicides down to prevent um, grassy weeds in your spring lawn and also fertilize fescue right now. Look for a number like 1648 or 24812, but it's where that nitrogen and potassium, the first and the third numbers are higher. That might be the best fertilizer for fescue now. Number two, prune shrubs like holly, ligustrum, euonymus. Those are going to be very forgiving if you need to cut those back significantly. Butterfly bush, be a little more gentle with. And rows of Sharon, you've just got that twiggy looking small tree in your yard. That you can take back as well. But don't prune shrubs right now that bloom in the spring like azaleas. Things like that because they have the buds on them now, so you're going to miss out on the flowers. And number three, while you're in the cutting mood, pampas grass and other ornamental grasses can be cut back to as as far back as like 12 inches high. And with monkey grass, liriope or liropi, however you say it, you can trim those back too. I do those by hand, but if you've got more, you can run a mower over them. And you can dig them up and split them and share them now if that's what you need to do. All right, we have time for one more. Rick in Cobb County. Hey, quickly, what's your question this morning? 
Hey, I have a, uh, a camellia bush that it's about six, seven, eight feet tall. It just late in the, in the, in the fall, uh-huh. it just it came on gangbusters with buds. I guess a hundred plus buds. And then they, they got to be about the size of the end of my thumb, maybe five, six, seven, eight, and they fell opened off. up. And nothing else happened. All right. So that I don't think was anything you did, Rick. Um, I've got about 45 seconds to answer you here. Very inconsistent winter weather, right? They got faked out with warm weather, and then we'd have a cold snap, and then it would warm up. That very well could be why it aborted some of the buds. Um, they need consistent weather, which we can't control. But also, they need all the energy they can to make all of those buds open. And also, they like good drainage. Um, and they don't like wet feet, so to speak. Camellias really need to kind of dry out in between. So also, the best thing you can do is just make sure they stay consistently watered. That's going to be great advice for camellias. That is something you can control, and that may help them retain some of the buds. So thanks for the call. Connie in Cartersville, yes, you can transplant a walnut tree and a peach tree today. But just make sure you're careful with the peach tree as to not disrupt your uh, harvest this spring. It's been a great Saturday morning. Thanks to John and Justin and you for calling. I'll be back next Saturday on Green and Growing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.